We have some folks that are with us for the first time this morning and just in kind of looking over the sanctuary this morning, see some faces that are unfamiliar, uh, see some other faces that have kind of grown familiar. And for the sake of those who are visiting or those who have begun to visit and for, I guess, kind of a reminder for the people that are here weekly, I want to share with you really what this is, this journey through Hebrews. You can turn there. I'm going to open in prayer in a moment, but I just want to share a thought with you before we climb into it. I am fully aware that when people go to church, they bring their problems with them. We can't separate our, our situation in life, situations in life, from this moment. And there's a potential each week to sort of preach to those problems and to sort of deal with things in life, what I would call topically. And I want to tell you right now that that is an awesome thing. God has used that in my life, and I bet he's used that in your life. Um, And I think it's God-honoring when you have problems and you come to the Lord and say, Lord, shine light from your word on this problem. I think it's a good thing. And we do that periodically, but what we do more of each week is something a little bit different. Still coming with our problems, still coming with, um, I guess, needs each week. We sort of are intentional about setting those things aside for a few minutes. It's sort of like a man and woman that are married, if the only time they ever interact with each other is to deal with each other's needs... Honey, I need some cash. Honey, I need some dinner. That'd be a malnourished relationship, and I think we would all agree that with that. So there's times where you expect if husband and wife are really going to be part of each other's lives that they spend time just enjoying each other, just spending time together, learning, even after years of marriage maybe, about each other's character, enjoying the truths about each other. That's, that's relationship. And certainly there are times where you come to each other for needs. But just like that, we should come to our Lord at times where we sort of put our needs aside. Lord, we don't need anything from you right now. I just want to enjoy you. I want to spend time learning about who you are and what you've done and what you've said and just enjoy you. The really cool thing about that is that when you do that and when you're intentional about that is God blesses and blesses you and changes your perspective on those needs. If you just set him aside for a little bit and come enjoy him for his sake, just for who he is, you come back oftentimes and you look at those needs again, those things that were sort of maybe even a crisis, and you look at them and you have a new set of eyes. The problems are still there. But you have a new insight into those problems to where you can reckon with them. Something that might beforehand seemed insurmountable. You look at the greatness of God and what he's done and you come back and look at that problem and you go, that's not such a big deal anymore. It's still there. But he changes you more than he changes the problem. So that's what we're going to do this morning. This is a pure sermon of the latter nature. It's not really going to deal with any of your problems. It's going to deal with the greatness of God, who he is, and what he's done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we surrender to it and submit to it and climb into it and do the work of engaging it, when you come back and you look at all these things that we bring, you'll have a different set of eyes. So let's be intentional. I'm going to pray, and I want us to be intentional about sort of setting those things aside for a moment. God, we're not coming to you with a need right now other than to enjoy you. We want to know who you are and what you've done. Let me pray. God, I am so thankful, so thankful for this time that we're about to spend together, just anticipating it, wrestling with it all week, fretting over it, worried about it. I'm just thankful that if we sit down and we enjoy who you are and what you've done, that you leave us changed, period. Lord, I know in that, though, I know there are distractions. I know there are attention spans. I know that there are 
things that are just really hard to set aside. And Lord, I pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit that you will do that in us for these next few minutes. And we can enjoy you for your sake. And that specifically this morning that we can learn more about who Christ is, present tense. Pray that you will do that for your glory. Also this morning, Lord, we want to lift up another church and another pastor. Uh, Just a dear friend and brother, Greg Fields. Just so thankful for uh, the journey of friendship and faith with another pastor in this community. I want to pray for the people of God at Westminster, Lord. We want to pray for your glory, pray for life. We pray for new life. We pray for discipleship. We pray for uh, worship. Pray for all these things to take place in this church, just recognizing that worship begets worship. And we pray for that there. We pray that it'll start with Greg and the other elders of the church. And I want to specifically speak to and ask about, ask for health and worship in Greg's marriage. Just thankful for the gospel that's on display in Greg and Tracy. Thankful that a little row of kids are getting to see what Christ looks like and what the church should look like. Lord, I pray that as Greg studies each week for preaching and pastoring, that first he studies to be a husband and a father, and that that spills over onto a little bitty micro-earth called his home on Park Street. And the gospel's on display not only to his wife and his children, but to his neighbors and to the community. Lord, we pray right now in the next few minutes as he stands and delivers your word that you will speak clearly and God's people will gather and enjoy you together. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in the book of Hebrews. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second half of verse 2 and then on into verse 3. Notice I didn't start out with a topic. This is in keeping with what I was kind of coaching you on this morning, a perspective. Set the topics aside. Let's climb into God's Word and what He's said and what's he's, what He's done. I encourage you to, if you can, to work on this journey together of memorization. I don't know that you ever have a better chance to memorize a book than you will right now as we journey together through Hebrews. I mean, memorize a book. Not a verse, a book. You can do that, trust me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This morning, we're really going to be looking at three realities about Christ. Again, having nothing to do with you and having everything to do with Christ and indirectly having much to do with you. First, that Christ was agent of creation. Secondly, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And third, that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's no light shows, no dancing girls, no um, special effects this morning. We're just going to climb in and unpack these three realities and see what God does with that. So let's start with him being the agent of creation. I want us first to get into the mind of the Jew and the mind of the Hellenistic Jew. If you've paid attention these last few weeks, I've differentiated between the native Jew, who would be a Hebrew or even Latin-speaking Jew in Jerusalem or Israel, and a a non-native or Hellenistic Jew who would live in what's called the Diaspora or the Roman Empire, the area surrounding Israel. That Jew would worship in synagogue and likely speak Greek. And they would likely study something called the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament. This book, or this sermon, we could call it, of Hebrews was written to Hellenistic Jews. It was written to those Jews who were speaking Greek, who were thinking and influenced by their context in the Roman Empire. So I want us to, first of all, climb into the mind of the Hellenistic Jew, and then we're going to climb into the mind just of the general Jew. And we're going to consider this first reality of through whom also he created the world. First thing I want to share with you, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 8. That's where we're going to go next. And while you're turning there, I'm going to share something with you from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. 
The Wisdom of Solomon, let me kind of tell you a little bit about it. It's a book that was in the Septuagint. It's in the Apocrypha, if some of you are familiar with the Apocrypha. It's not in our Bibles because we don't consider it canonical is the term. We don't consider it to be inspired Scripture as part of our canon. But it is influential. And it is something that these Hellenistic Jews would have been very familiar with. It was likely written 200 to 100 years or so before Christ. Just a little side note, if you ever wonder why something's considered canonical or not, there's lots of things that are factored into that. One of the things that's very clear is pseudepigrapha. When someone takes a name and tags it to a book that they've written and says, says that, like, for example, this is the wisdom of Solomon, but Solomon didn't write it, excluded. It's a lie from the outset, at least a lie in respect to who wrote it. Now, I don't know that that's the only grounds for the wisdom of Solomon not being in our Bible, but that's one clear reason that it's not in there, is it wasn't written by Solomon. Solomon lived about... A 1,000 years or so before Christ, not 200 years or so before Christ. So why am I going here? I'm going here because this would have been very familiar text to Hellenistic Jews. It was written in the Septuagint. It was written in Greek. They would have studied it in synagogue. This would have been very familiar. Now listen to this from Wisdom of Solomon chapter 7. If you have your Apocrypha with you, you can turn there. (laughs) Verse 21. I want you to listen to some of the things that we have brought out just from this Hebrews passage already. Creator, the radiance of the glory of God and exact imprint of his nature. And third, he upholds the universe with the word of his power. Listen for those things. I learned both what is secret and what is manifest. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. They would have already thought about this thing called wisdom. And in their mind, they thought about it as a a beautiful woman, which is interesting. Wisdom sort of had this female character, but it was sort of the, the thoughts and the actions and the work of God. They weren't thinking about God like a woman. They were thinking about his wisdom as this beautiful woman. And from the outset here in this passage, wisdom is thought of as the fashioner of all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Though she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things." In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is not inspired scripture. The reason I'm sharing it is so we can climb into the mind of the Hellenistic Jew who's hearing these words of Christ being the one who created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And they're going, oh, that sounds just like wisdom chapter 7. I share that because I want us to climb into the mind of the Hellenistic Jew. Now let's climb into the mind of the Jew in Proverbs chapter 8. This is inspired scripture. I'm going to focus primarily in verses 22 onward, but I want to bring a little bit of this wisdom woman into the picture. Starting in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? This beautiful woman. On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, now it shifts gears. It's been a witness talking about um, uh, wisdom so far. Now wisdom starts talking herself. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of men. O simple ones, (laughs) learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. 
Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. Skip down to verse 10. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom's better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Now I'm going to start in verse 22. And I want you to understand right now, in the mind of the Jew, they weren't sitting around thinking about silly stuff. They were thinking about this beautiful woman, wisdom. Now listen to this beautiful, and I'm going to put quotes, woman. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, you could say, I already was. I hope some of y'all are thinking about John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because there was never a time when he was not. See, this starts talking about a man, a specific man, instead of a beautiful woman. And I hope he's sounding familiar to you. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields are the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was already there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Just envision Jesus with a like a belt, tool belt. It's got like a hammer and all kind of, I don't know what kind of stuff you guys wear on your belt. Jeff Ott, you <laughs> Bud Jones, chainsaw. <laughs> you got it all on there, boy. Is the master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. The thing that I want y'all to see that the Jew would have been very familiar with is that his beginnings were not in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's beginnings were in him. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. Bethlehem's beginnings were in him. He was the master workman. He's the fashioner of all things. He's the breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. He's a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. He renews all things. It's sort of like the Hebrews writer is taking what would have been familiar to them. Some of it inspired, some of it not. Saying, let me tell you about who Jesus is. Let me tell you about who he is and what he's done. It's almost like Paul preaching in the Areopagus. Let me tell you about the unknown God. See that statue over there? Let me tell you about who he is. Let me make him known. It's taking the context and the ingredients of the context and divine revelation and previous revelation to show them who Christ was. And here's what he wanted them to see that we've got to see today is that Christ was the effective creator and God the Father was the ultimate creator. Christ was the effective creator, and God the Father was the ultimate creator. Christ was the agent of creation through whom he made the world. Some of y'all may have heard of a guy named Stephen Hawking. He is a, a, a physicist and a cosmologist. I, I, I often get cosmetologist and cosmologist mixed up. And I think he's a cosmologist and not a cosmetologist. But this guy is a really outspoken atheist and a pretty respected scientist. Here's some things that he said. In 2010, he said, there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and as opposed to science, which is based on observation and reason. Science will win because it works. Okay, he's thinking like a scientist. Scientists aren't bad, just so you know. We're not anti-scientists. Scientists are good. He's thinking like a scientist in a purest sense, though. One of his early writings called The Brief History of Time, he says this, 
If we discover a complete theory, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we should know the mind of God. The mind of who? At least early on in his studies, he recognized that there was something out there, although he wouldn't put a finger on it. In the same book, he suggested the existence of God was unnecessary to explain the origin of the universe. And I thought this was an interesting uh, statement. Because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. I don't know about you, but I'm hearing that and saying that, that's a leap even for a scientist. Because there's a law of gravity, okay, the universe can create itself from nothing. Now, why am I sharing those details about Stephen Hawking? Here's some words from his book, A Brief History of Time. Our galaxy is an average-sized galaxy about 600 trillion miles across. That's, you can have the little video camera in your, or TV in your car, which we have in our car, which is the most amazing traveling machine ever invented. But your kids are still going to have a problem with that kind of trip. That's a long way. I don't care how many movies or what you got. 600,000 million miles. Uh, we know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. And each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. The average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies is 3 million light years. It's also been found that all these galaxies are moving away from each other, that the universe is expanding, racing away at 200 million miles an hour. So this rapidly expanding universe, this is my words, demands a beginning. It points to something that took place at a beginning, and I'm going to argue, of course, I'm a Christian, I'm going to argue for this that these words were the beginning. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to, to rule the night and the stars. God said, let there be all these things. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens as the master workman got to work. The master workman was the effective creator that hung these billions and billions of stars. I enjoy making that statement in the same paragraph with even words from Stephen Hawking. Something about that, I really enjoy that Christ is the fashioner of all things, Stephen. Maybe the writer of the book of Hebrews starts out here pointing out Christ as the creator because their view of him may have diminished. How can you stop listening to him if he was the effective creator? Now, the reason I share that is just share, it was less about Stephen Hawking and more about the sort of the things that he was pointing to, the expanse of the universe and our belief as Christians is Christ being the effective creator of that universe. Now, I share in a contrast now a diminished or limited view of Jesus. This would be sort of the other polar extreme of Jesus. This is the Christian extreme is what it should be is seeing Christ as the effective creator. Now, here's the other extreme. I was talking about this in staff meeting with uh, Scott and the other guys. Scott mentioned, um, I, I was sharing with him my thoughts about how easy it is for someone to contain Christ just to the flesh. And he said, well, even worse than that is to maybe even contain him to a baby. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it made me think of Ricky Bobby's prayer. In Talladega Nights. Is it Nights? Okay. I, I texted him the other day. I said, you have that Talladega Lights? I want to watch that. I haven't watched it. You should know. I would never watch such a thing, but Scott did. <laughs> but here's an excerpt. Here's an excerpt of his prayer. And this serves a purpose. So if you're like, man, this is weird. Why? Hang in there. All right. This is not just entertainment, although it is kind of funny. Ricky's praying. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call him. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. I also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., 
who's got my back no matter what. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. It smells terrible, and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear tiny infant Jesus, and his wife butts in, Carly. She says, hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. He says, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus, whoever you want. And I think it was at that point that Cal Naughton chimed in. He said, I like Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because the tuxedo, the tuxedo portion kind of says I'm formal, but the T-shirt says I'm here to party, and that's the Jesus that I like. So Ricky starts praying again. Dear tiny Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fists. Dear eight pound, six ounce newborn baby Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant. So cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the 21.2 million dollars. Love that money. He goes on and on and on. The reason I took the time to engage that is because all satire is funny because it has an element of truth in it. That's why it's funny. And it's funny, and really, for us, it's sad to realize that some people think of Jesus like this, this little manger Jesus, little baby Jesus, and he's really pretty easy to deal with. He doesn't have any sermons yet, in fact. He hasn't said anything except coo. Fat little balled-up fist. You can see how Ricky Bobby here enjoys this kind of Jesus because he doesn't impose any demands on Ricky's life. Obviously, Ricky doesn't exist. We're just speaking... Hypothetically, I think there are folks that are really okay with baby Jesus, but then there are some less so maybe, or fewer folks, but still many that are okay with earthly Jesus. I'm okay with earthly Jesus, a sort of an interesting enigma. He's a poor carpenter's son that gets a gathering, a bunch of people follow him, and then they kill him. It's really a pretty tragic story. It's almost like he's a Robin Hood with words, though, because he comes up against the establishment. He's easy to like if you don't really listen to what he said. And the world can really like this earthly Jesus as well. But the Christian declaration is he's more than baby Jesus. He's more than tiny infant Jesus. He's more than tuxedo t-shirt wearing Jesus. He's more than Christmas Jesus, more than grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or even just earth Jesus. He's creator Jesus. He's the master workman. That's the Christian reality right there. That's a big, big, big Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made The Christian Jesus, we recognize, we enjoy, we worship, created every atom, every quark, every electron, every neutrino, every mountain range, every ocean. He created them from nothing. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's our Jesus. Man, we need to know that. Let me amplify this just a tad. This word in Greek for world is the word aeon. And it means ages. So we could read it, we, just to bring it out and amplify it a little bit, we could read it like this. Through whom also he created the ages. So it's not just this round ball of stuff with a bunch of people walking around on it, but it's the notion that he created the ages. It includes time and space and the universe and its content. Something that we need to realize about this creator is that he created time and the times. That's even bigger than just this globe. But he created all existence before and since. You're going to see this come into focus later on in the message. I want you to see and know that the Son was appointed heir of all things. We considered that last week. He was instrumental in making it. Of course, he's appointed heir of what he made. It's yet another reason to call him Lord. It seems appropriate that you commit all to Christ since he made it all as the master workman and he's due it all as the heir of all things. Now, 
The second thing we're going to consider this morning is he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Here we're going to move into what was likely an early hymn. This is cool to me because this is early liturgy. Liturgy is sort of a flow to worship. You may not understand or know what that is. We don't talk about that a lot. There is sort of a liturgy here at our church where we sing some songs about the true, true things about God, and then we hear from God as a sermon. This is, hey, let's, Clint, come on up. Let's sing a song here in verse 3 and 4, and then let's continue on with the sermon, i.e. the rest of the book of Hebrews. These, this was likely an early hymn in verses 3 and 4. The meter and the phrasing sound like song in the original language. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here the verbs shift from past tense to present tense. Up, up to this point, all the verbs have been past tense. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Past tense. It's called aorist tense. God spoke to us by his son. Done deal. We don't need any new conversations. We don't need any new words from God. It's been spoken completely. He's been appointed heir of all things. Bam, done deal. He created the world. Bam, done deal. Now we move into present tense realities like he is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance is a cool word in Greek. I'm not going to tell you what the great Greek word is. It doesn't really matter. But what the word means, I'm going to give you a new word. It's likely new for most of you. It's not a word that I've ever used, but it's a good word. It's the word effulgence. Effulgence. It means shining forth. The Greek word here is like the loom for the headlights on your car. Or the illumination that's given off from a city at night. You may not see the source of the light like a car being on the other side of the horizon, but you can see the loom as that car is coming your way before it crests the horizon. That loom is the shining forth or the effulgence from the source, the radiation from the source. Sailors look for this loom even over the horizon before they see the lighthouse. It reveals the presence of the beacon, and it's a life-saving beacon. They're looking for that light. And it radiates out. Effulgates, or effulgates. That's not the word. Effulges from that source. It's a good word. This is what Jesus does with God's glory. God's glory could be defined as the full manifestation of God's character and attributes. So Christ effulges God's glory in the full manifestation of his attributes. He is full strength God. He is undiluted God, and he's not a reflection. Let me tell you about the difference between a reflection and a radiation or effulgence. Evan wrote a a paper the other day. I didn't ask for her permission about this. I'm not going to share any of the paper. I'm just going to share how she represented the moon. She represented the moon as being a thief and a parasite. She was calling the moon a thief and a parasite because it reflects sun that's not its own sun, or it reflects light that's not his own light. That's radiation. Christ does not reflect the glory of the Father. He is the emanation of the glory of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father. It is a very different deal altogether. Listen to these passages. Just listen. Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's effulgence. That's radiating the glory of God. Here's another example in Acts chapter 9. I like this one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's Christ speaking. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Because he had beheld the effulgence 
of the glory of God. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It makes sense that Paul was blinded, for Christ is the effulgence and the radiance of the glory of God. And he's the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint, the word there in Greek is the word character. That's a full-on Greek word. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. The word character is a Greek word, and it's used oftentimes when it's speaking of the imprinting or stamping of coins, where the die stamps out a coin, and the coin is then an exact imprint of what was stamped out. That's what's being said about Christ right here, is that he bears the stamp of the nature of God. These realities taken together, the glory or the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, taking together, paint this picture. Just as the beams of the sun bathe or effulge this earth, the glory of God shines here in Christ and bathes this earth with hope and gospel. And as it bathes here, as that radiant glory of God shines here in the incarnate flesh and work of Christ, he explains this God. He makes him known. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is full strength God. He is undiluted God. Make no mistake. What was wisdom of God to Hellenistic Jews? The wisdom of God was this beautiful woman, the personification of God's attributes. But for the writer of Hebrews, it's not some ethereal, good-looking woman. It is a man born in Bethlehem to a carpenter's son, a man who lived and died in Israel just a few decades before he wrote this sermon, but who is the perfect revelation of the unseeable, unapproachable God. He effulges his glory, full strength, undiluted, and is the exact imprint of his nature. Third, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This word upholds, if you notice, you're paying attention, that's also present tense. And it means to carry or maintain, to carry toward its proper goal. I'm going to give you an example of the use of this word where you can kind of think what this might look like. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, that's the word, by the Holy Spirit. He does with the universe what the Holy Spirit did with the prophets. He carries it along to his purpose and his end. This word here for universe means everything. It's not just space. It's everything that's in it. All the existing things from the farthest star and the farthest galaxy to the inner workings of the human cell. He upholds present tense Everything And how does he do that? By the word of his power. The word there in the Greek is the word rima, and it points toward the action of speaking as opposed to logos is the written word. We could say the spoken, powerful word in context, understanding what he's saying here. Power is an attribute of word. So his mighty spoken word would be a way to read it or his enabling spoken word. Now, here's the point of this third thing. The creative utterance which called the universe into being requires as its complement the sustaining utterance by which it is being maintained. I'm going to say it again because you've got to get this. The creative utterance which spoke the universe into being requires, in our cases, we're engaging this, the master workman to complement that creative work with the sustaining utterance by which it's maintained in being. God said, let there be light, and the master workman says, let there be Monday. See that? Let there be tomorrow. The master workman is so involved in creation that he says, let there be September. Let there be 2012. I hope as you're hearing that about Christ, realizing that he sustains all things to that degree that you're going, what might 
how can I possibly limit him to tuxedo Jesus or baby Jesus or tiny infant Jesus or even earthly Jesus? That is some amazing might. This makes me want to pray. As I'm thinking about the future, man, here's my prayer. Let there be year 44 for Ben. Enjoying year 44 of Christy. Enjoying year 44 of, or 14 of Evan and 12 of Luke and 8 of Daniel and 9 of Crosspoint. Lord, let there be. It makes me want to pray to the one who speaks tomorrow into existence. That is Christ. If you see him upholding everything from galaxy to mitochondria with his powerful spoken word, then you could and she is, and almost see him saying, let there be today. He spoke today into existence before you got up. He spoke your breath into existence that you're taking right now. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Man, does that make you quake? It makes a big Jesus. He spoke the fact that we're all here now conscious of his utterance. He spoke that into existence. I'm hoping that in a few minutes he says, let there be lunch. Because I'm going to be hungry. And you know what? I'm not going to eat unless he speaks it into existence. Do you see that dependence on Jesus? <laughs> there will be no lunch except that he speaks it into existence. So for some of you, there may be a presentation at work. Put it in Jesus' hands and say, Lord, please say, let there be presentation. That doesn't mean don't work on it. <laughs> but it means you put it in his hands. And let him be the mover in that. Some of you need to put your marriage in his hands and said, Lord, please say, let there be husband and wife putting the gospel on display. He can do it. That's what he does. Without his sustaining creative word, everything that we know and experience would vaporize into nothing. Do you see tomorrow as that dependent on him? That's Jesus. It's that dependent on him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are, are all things and through whom we exist. We don't even exist apart from him sustaining that utterance that we sit here now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. On the front of your bulletin, you have a picture of Atlas holding up the earth. He was a Greek um, god, little g god. And that's a pretty amazing feat, you know, myth, mythological. Someone could actually hold up the earth. But I, the reason I have that on there in some ways is to do what the writer of Hebrews did. He said, let me take some of these things that are familiar to you and say what, he, what Christ isn't so I can say what he is. Christ is not Atlas, Holding up the earth. For Christ upholds, sustains, maintains, and carries toward its proper goal all things. Atlas on his best day couldn't do any of that. Christ does all those things. He carries it toward its proper course. That makes me want to pray. Dear Jesus, uphold us today, this week. Uphold us today in this marriage. Dear Jesus, uphold us in this context here in Greenville, in this workplace, in this neighborhood, in this relationship. Insert issue. Dear Jesus, speak into utterance or speak into existence. My walking in this for your own glory. Speak us into continued existence for your glory. Now, I have three brief so what's to go with each of these things. I hope you do that when you're reading. I mean, it's not rude to go, okay, so what? It's not so what. It's so what? What does that mean? What do we do with that? Here's the first so what. If he's made it all, then he owns it all. When you make something, you then have dominion over that thing that you've made. And here's my question for you. Does he have dominion over you? There are lots of folks that would say, yeah, okay, I could see him as creator, but he has no dominion over you, so it's just lip service. Creator means that he has dominion. Does he have dominion over you? If you acknowledge him as creator, then he must. He must have rule 
over you. We can't even create a particle of dust. We can't even create a fruit fly. And yet he has spoken all things into existence. You see how ridiculous and proud it would be to stop listening to such a one? The same God who spoke creation into existence is the same God that the psalmist cries out to. Listen to this psalm and just listen for what Christ does. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in, my, in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Listen, Creator, master workman, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. No one else can do that. Nobody else can do that in you but the master workman. And that's what he does because he's the effective creator. He's the master workman that makes us into a new creation. He can take your nothingness and make it into something for his own glory. That's just what he does. The second, so what? If he is the radiance or the effulgence of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, then we know God through what Christ has said and done, period. We know God through what Christ has said and done. There are no other ways to God, period. To me, it is absolutely unchristian to think that this is one of many ways to God. In fact, it is counter Christ's message. No one comes to me or comes to the Father except by me, period. He is the definite article, exclusive revelation of God. And the third, so what? If he upholds the universe by the word of his power or his powerful word, then can't we look to him to uphold us in our marriages? In eight years, man, I've gone through marriage challenges. Some of y'all have been around, you know that. By year five, when we started sabbatical, Christy and I were looking at each other going, man, how can we go the distance in this? I mean, we weren't talking divorce. We were just, we were just existing. We're like, man, I, I don't know that we got any hope here. And in the last three years, the Lord has transformed that and given us a new perspective on our marriage, and we're enjoying each other right now. But the reality is, our marriage is not upheld or sustained but by Christ. Someone who looks for hope for their marriage apart from Christ, man, you're looking for a Band-Aid for cancer. I mean it. And here's how it manifests itself at times. I'm going to go read this book or I'm going to go to this counselor. Nothing wrong with counselors or a book. At the expense of Christ. I cannot tell you how many times I'm sitting down with people and talking through marriage struggles or marriage problems and they got this going on, this going on, this going on. And I'm saying, man, what did you do with Sunday's message about Christ? I went, what else you got? I need help for my marriage. I don't know, that was help for your marriage. Enjoying who Christ is and what he's done, that is help for your marriage. That's gotta be primary. Read the book, go to the counselor. But if you do those things without enjoying who Christ is and what he's done, man, it's held together with bubble gum and shoestrings and duct tape. I promise you. He upholds and sustains marriages. Can you look to him to uphold your work environment? Oh, well, no, that's separate from my worship. No, it's not. 
When you look to him in your work setting where somebody, some business, I won't name any businesses, is are eating your lunch, running you ragged. Like, I don't know how I can go the distance in this. When you look to Christ as your hope and your hope in that, that's called worship. Because he's the one that sustains you in that. When you don't, it's not worship. You're being equipped for that situation right now. You realize that? You're being equipped for that drama right now. Can't we look to him to uphold us in our marriage, uphold us in our work, uphold us in our parenting? I've got three perfect kids, but I know some of y'all have some difficult kids. (laughs) Y'all need to look to Jesus, man, I'm telling you. You know I'm being facetious there. But man, in our parenting, we've got to look to the one who sustains parenting. He upholds it. We can look to him to uphold us in life. We can look to him to uphold us in school. I'm just now being acquainted with some of the challenges that people face in school. Kids, friends, what to wear, what my hair looks like, acne. I've forgotten all that stuff. I wore overalls to school. <laughs> Even when I was there, I didn't care that much about it. But I, I understand a lot of people do. And that's, that's your whole world. My encouragement to young people is let Jesus uphold you in that. He upholds the universe. Don't you think he can uphold your day at school? You don't have any friends? You don't feel like anybody really is enjoying you and really wants to know who you are? Let Jesus uphold you in that. When you do, that's called worship. He upholds the universe. Your day is included in that universe. Your marriage is included in that universe. Your parenting. Don't you think he's capable? Do you limit him to the pages of the gospel, earth Jesus? Or worse, tuxedo Jesus? Man, he's so much more than that. Do you see an ongoing and active and capable upholding of all things by Christ? You should. He is creator. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he is sustainer. How could we not listen to him? Let's pray. God, I pray that these truths will find purchase in our lives. I pray that they will migrate from ear to heart as we talk about these things and process some of these things and chew on them and meditate on them and consider the reality of Christ as creator, of Christ as the radiance of God, as the exact imprint of your nature, and as the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. I pray that that will just be something we talk about as families, that shepherds and families will be bringing those things up with their kids and with their wives That those single moms who are functionally shepherding their family will talk with other families or other ladies that they walk with about these truths. I pray they'll find purchase. I pray they'll invade those days that Christ has spoken into existence. Monday. I pray they'll invade those lunches that he speaks into existence. And that we'll give him all glory and honor as we enjoy him in those contexts. Thankful for these truths. Thankful for our breath that we take right now. It was granted to us, spoken into existence by Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to participate now in the Lord's Supper. And I want us to take some of the truths that we just engaged and be really mindful of them as we take the supper together. He spoke into existence what we're about to do. Let's start there. He spoke into existence a moment when God's people gather around a representation of his broken body and his blood. And we eat and drink those things remembering his cross. As we take and eat and drink today, consider too that we're enjoying him not just as sacrifice, but also as creator. Also as the effulgence of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, 
and as the sustainer of all things. The fact that we're even here is because of Jesus. The fact that four elders can stand and walk to this table is because of Jesus. The fact that your hand can reach out and grab these elements is because of Jesus. The fact that you can worship and see God is because of Jesus. Let's enjoy the greatness of Jesus the next few minutes as we take the supper together. Take and eat. As we take this, let's enjoy him as creator, as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and the sustainer. Let's take and drink. At the beginning of the sermon, I prayed that what we heard today would migrate from ear to heart, or maybe it was the end of the sermon. It all runs together at this point. Um, the way that I find that happens is through talking through it, processing it. And the first place that should happen would be at home. And that's a given. I encourage you. That's what a dinner table's for. It's for eating too, but that's what eating is for. So we can sit around and talk about the greatness of God and his provision. So I encourage you, escort that into your, your den or your, di- your dining room or living room or wherever. Make that conversation part of your home. That's worship when you do that. That's the first way these things find purchase and migrate from ear to heart. Another way they do it is in small group. That's not the only way in the world that can happen, but it's something that we do. We're very intentional as a church to be serious about engaging each other between Sundays. So we have small groups that are set up Monday through Thursday nights. Um, No, we have one on Friday night. I don't know if we have one on Saturday night, but Monday through Friday nights, different small groups meeting in different places at different times with that very purpose of talking through what we heard, trying to process what did God say and what does that mean to us, and then being part of each other's lives. I don't think God is going to let you get away with going the distance of faith by yourself. By definition, the journey of faith is with others. It's in community. So I encourage you to be intentional about engaging, knowing others, and being known by others. He's not going to let you do this thing by yourself. And you might think, well, man, I, things always get sticky when I start to get to know people. Well, it's a mess worth making. I promise you, that's the title of a book, a good book. It's a mess worth making, and it's one that brings glory to God. When you're walking through this with real people, with real problems that will disappoint you, perfect. Great environment for the gospel to be lived out. So I encourage you, get to know others in the church. It's hard for me sometimes on Sunday morning because I know some of y'all, this is it. And then the only interaction you're going to have with anybody is with me. It puts a lot of pressure on me. I can't, I can't be all of y'all's friends. I can't do that. And you're like, I want to talk to the guy that spoke on Sunday. Just know that there are 12 other people come alongside me called small group shepherds that are neck deep in this sermon also. They're going to be walking through these realities on these different nights during the week. So get to know them. I want to get to know you. Trust me. That I'm not putting anybody off saying, please don't talk, talk to me or but it puts a lot of responsibility on me to unpack sermons like this and then to come alongside you and be your friend all week long and hang out and talk and process these truths together. Maybe I'm your first step. Let's leave it at that, first step or second step, and then let's move into community and walk with others in these truths. That's God's best. I know that's not a cultural norm. There's this one pastor and everybody hangs out with him. That's why the families are looking at him saying, who are you? Hopefully you see my, my priority is right here and your burden and my, the best that God has for you is to be engaged with each other's walking in truth. So that's a strong appeal to engage small groups. Secondly, I encourage you tonight, take Sunday nights as an opportunity to spend time with each other. We leave Sunday nights open for that purpose. So you can, hey man, let's go to dinner or hey, come over and let's grill out or or be grilled out, or whatever, depending if it's still that hot. It's turning cold now, though, isn't it? Um, spend time engaging each other. Take Sunday nights. It's a great opportunity to do that. And lastly, if you're sitting by somebody you don't know, turn around and introduce yourself. 
and meet somebody that you don't know. So we have lots of folks that are sort of visiting and sort of engaging church right now. Um, and I encourage the Crosspoint family to get to know these folks that are visiting with us. We're glad you're here this morning. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. God, you are so good to give us your word, to give us the Holy Spirit, to expose and explain, to open the eyes of our hearts to the greatness of this story, the greatness of who Christ is and what he's done. I pray that today that he has been enjoyed. The master workman has been on display today. I pray that he's been enjoyed. I pray that we've been equipped to enjoy him on into the days of the week that he is speaking into existence one by one. We love you, Lord, and we give you this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.